Engagement with the spirit of renunciation, where every action becomes a means of giving up the existing ragadveshas or attachment and aversion, and then disengagement, the contemplative life of what you may call as renunciate, and that is for the pursuit of knowledge, so that the cause of ragadvesha is given up. And that is a complete freedom. So first level of freedom is the freedom from ragadvesha. The second level of freedom is, or ultimate freedom is, the freedom from ignorance. <coughs> and so this discussion of the division of the whole samsara into these threefold ways of Sattarajastamas is now concluded by Lord Krishna in the 40th verse, verse 40. <coughs> Natadasti prasivyam va, natadasti prasivyam va, divideveshu vapunaha, divideveshu vapunaha, sattvam prakruti jair muktam, sattvam prakruti jair muktam, yadev hisyatri bhirgunai, yadev hisyatri bhirgunai. Natadasti Sattvam, there is no existent thing, Prasivyamva, either on the earth, Divideveshu, or in heaven among the gods. There is no existing thing, either on the earth, or in the heavens among the gods. Yet, Prakrutijaihi, Trivihi, Gunaihi, Muktam Syad, that would be free from these three gunas born of Prakriti. Lord Krishna says the entire creation consisting of the sentient and insentient beings anywhere, either on the earth or in the heavens or in the nether worlds or any world there can be. So wherever any being is there, understand Arjuna that it is made up of these three gunas, sattva, rajas and tamas. Because a question may arise in our mind that Lord Krishna has described these various categories as falling in the divisions of Sattva Rajasthamas. But maybe there is something else that doesn't fall in this category. To remove that doubt, Lord Krishna says, there is nothing whatever in the whole universe, anywhere, which can be free from these three gunas, Sattva Rajasthamas. In short, whatever is created, whatever is created is necessarily created by the combination of these three gunas, Sattva Rajasthamas. The Sankhyas described in the process of creation that before the creation there is the balance of Sattva, Rajas and Tamas. There is three, these three Gunas are in balance. Imagine like the, like the billiard, billiard table on which number of balls are there, all of them are stacked in balance. At that time there is no movement. All you need to do is just give a slight push in one place and all the balls start rolling. Similarly also, these three gunas are in a state of balance before the creation, in a state that we call the pralaya or dissolution. And in the beginning of creation, a slight disturbance comes into being and then we have what we call the imbalance of these three gunas. So for the process of creation of movement to take place, there must be imbalance of the sattvarajasthamas. When they are in balance, there is no movement, no creation. Imbalance, the creation process begins. And therefore, it is said that the creation requires 
an imbalance of sattva, rajas and tamas and therefore whatever is created is necessarily created from the combination of these three, sattva, rajas and tamas. <coughs> and that is how Lord Krishna has described in fact the entire samsara. This samsara is described by Shankaracharya as as kriya, karaka, phala. These three words are used and you will find this often happening, you know. So let me just write it down for you. <coughs> Samsara here means the whole universe, whatever is created. And typically it is described as consisting of these three. Kriya means action. Karkas means accessories. And phala. means the result. See, Lord Krishna described, if you look at the chart which we gave in the morning, Lord Krishna described various things. One of the things that he described was karma. And other things that Lord Krishna described were the karta. That is a doer. And also describe the intellect. Describe the knowledge. Intellect. And the fortitude. So, these are all the accessories required for performing the action. Right. And then finally, the phala is described. This fortitude is said to be dhruti. Intelligence is buddhi. Knowledge is Jnana. And the result, the happiness. Meaning Sukham. So, see how the things take place. First of all, knowledge takes place in my mind. I come to perceive something, I come to know something, <coughs> and I know it as something desirable or undesirable. So whenever I know the objects of the world, then I know them either as desirable or undesirable. If they are neither desirable nor non-desirable, I am indifferent to them. 
But when something is known to be desirable or undesirable, then I react to it. If it is desirable, I want to acquire it. Undesirable, I want to get rid of it. So from the knowledge, then this desire will arise. And my mind, my intellect then will decide what it is that it wants to do. Pravrutti nivrutti. What kind of an action should be performed to accomplish that end, the intellect will decide. And my dhruti, my fortitude, will hold on to that particular end. And with that, I perform karma or the action. As a result of action, comes the phala, the happiness or unhappiness. So, when this happiness or unhappiness comes, happiness is desirable, unhappiness undesirable, again my mind will react. If it is happiness, I want more of it, I want to hold on to it. Unhappiness, I don't want to, I don't want it. So again a desire arises. With happiness, desire to acquire or hold on to it. Unhappiness, desire to get rid of it. From there again, karma will arise. From again, the phala will arise. Again, desire will arise. Karma and phala. You can see how the whole cycle goes on. So this is how the whole cycle goes on of karma, karma phala and desire. So knowledge gives rise to desire, that gives rise to action, and that gives rise to the result. Or experience. And so this knowledge also can be called experience. Because the experience of the result is judged again as happy or unhappy, desirable, undesirable. You come back here, like in this computer loop, you know. So then immediately it comes back here, then starts again. Desire, action, result. Come back here, desire, result. Desire, action, result. This is the life. This is how one goes on and on until that somehow the desire gets satisfied. And that will happen. When will this happen? When one becomes free from desire. When will that happen? When the knowledge happens that there is nothing desirable, nothing undesirable. Everything is fine. Everything is perfect. Everything is Brahman. That I am Brahman and therefore nothing desirable, undesirable. Everything is perfect. When that knowledge takes place, then there is no desire because there is no need to change the perfect or there is no need to change the completeness. So desire always expresses a need to change. When I find myself incomplete, there is a need to change. When the knowledge takes place there, I am the complete being, there is no need to change. And so... Yeah, now you see what happens is, this action requires different accessories. They, they call in Sanskrit Karaka. We can translate them as accessories. See, for an action to take place, 
first thing that is required is the one to perform the action. If you are familiar with Sanskrit, then you know how the different cases come into operation. So, first thing that you require to perform action is karta. That is the doer. This is the first case. Right? Ramaha, Ramo, Ramaha. That's the, there is a nominative case. And then comes Ram, Ramo, etc. So, karta, you require the doer. For me to do something, I require an object upon which I do something. For example, take the action of eating, simple action. The eater is required, the food is required for me to eat, and so that food which is object of action is called karma. This karma is different from that karma, you know. That karma is action is different from this karma, this is object. That's the second case, that's what you require. Well, the eater also is there, the food also is there. We require the instrument, my finger, so my hand, with which I take the food and put it in my mouth and then masticate it. So that is called the instrument. The third case, instrumental case. That is called Karanam. That's the third case. At least these three are required. You require other things also. Usually when I eat the food, I offer it to someone. Offer it to my stomach to appease the hunger. Always the purpose of performing an action. So that's the fourth case. Or when you when you are performing a home or a yaga, so in the fire we invoke the devatas and we make the offering. So the offering is made keeping some devatas, some deity in mind. Devata is called sampradana, to whom this is offered. So when something is offered, when I am offering the food, also I am offering to my stomach or myself, you know, for appeasing the hunger, there is a purpose of doing it. And of course there is always a movement, when you perform an action, some movement is always involved. Food can be eaten when it moves from the plate into my mouth, you know, that movement. So from one place to the other, so from somewhere, you know the movement takes place, that is the fifth case, that is called apadana. And all the action must take place in a place, in a location. I must be sitting someplace, the plate must be there, that is called adhikaranam, the location, you see. They are not so important. The first three are most important, of course, for us. So that's why Lord Krishna said, Jnanam, Karma cha, Karta cha. No, uh, uh, yeah. Huh? No. Jnanam, Gnayam, Parignata, Tridha. So Jnanam, Gnayam, Parignata, Trividha, Karma Chodana. 
So these three are involved for impelling any action. Jnanam, Jnayam, Parijnata. The knowledge, the knower and the object of knowledge. That's the reason why Lord Krishna has described all these important accessories by which, which are required for performance of an action. So, the knowledge also becomes one of the accessories of performing an action. The doer also is an accessory, the object, instrument, all these accessories are required for performing an action. This is also Lord Krishna described. And there is a result, which is called Sukham happiness. But really speaking, the happiness born of rajas and tamas are as good as unhappiness. Happiness born of sattva is a real happiness. So let's say the result of happiness or unhappiness also is described. And that's how the whole samsara is described. Because, so the whole universe is, is what? Whole universe is what we call the phala, karma phala, that's what it is. Because, in order for me to gain an experience, let's say I perform an action and I have to gain an experience of happiness. Let's say I have to enjoy music, or to watch dance, or I have to eat ice cream, let us say. Something like that. Or I have to take a, have a cup of tea. So was an experience. In order for God to help me gain that experience, you know what will be required? You know what a cup of tea costs for? A cup of tea requires what? The other day I was invited for giving a lecture someplace and before the lecture there was a social whatever, whatever you know and so they served tea, I had gone there a few minutes earlier, I was talking to the people and I asked this question, hey where does the tea come from? Swami, it comes from the tea kettle, from there. Oh, where did it come from in the tea kettle? Oh, it's from the kitchen. What happened? You In the kitchen you have some kind of a... Why, you have some kind of a tank which, or machine which gives tea? No, Swamiji, tea is prepared in the kitchen. How do you make tea? You don't know this? Just water and that were milk and some sugar and some spices. In Gujarat they always add spices also. And then the tea and then let this thing boil and settle down, that is tea. Oh, and then you require milk, you require sugar, sugar require tea leaves, require water and require the fire to boil all of this. Where did you get the milk from? Oh, from milk carton, milk pouch. You get milk in pouches in India. What do these pouches come from? Sky or something? No, Swami, they come from the store. Where did the store fellow get from? From the dairy. What dairy is some kind of, uh, you know, uh, where does the dairy get from? Swami, they get from the cows. Where does the cow get the milk from? What is Swamiji? The cows eat the grass. Where does the grass come from? Yeah, the grass has to grow in the ground. How does it grow? Oh, you require some seeds and you require the water, you require the sunlight and you require the air and everything else. Oh, so then for the grass to grow you require sun and the sun has to be active, you know, the sun must evaporate that water from the reservoirs and convert to clouds and the rain has to come. For that moon also is required, wind also is required, earth is required. <coughs> for one cup of tea, how many things you require? If you add up all this. <laughs> this is for milk, then for sugar, for tea leaves. And you will see where the tea is grown, in those tea gardens. Of course all this process requires human beings and lot of other infrastructure is required 
for all these things to come from one place to the other. If you add up what all is required for just one cup of tea, and how about that? How about the fire? Oh, Swami, there is this, it comes from the gas bottle. Where does the gas bottle come from? From the refinery. How does it come there from? From the petroleum. Where does the petroleum come from? From the ground. How does it go into the ground? Swamiji, you see, millions of years ago, when there was a forest, and these forests were all compressed, and that's how they all got converted to carbon, and they were there for millions of years and got converted into petroleum. I said, hey, somebody seems to have planned all this. I guess millions of years ago somebody knew that this afternoon at four o'clock we're going to require a cup of tea and therefore we need to plan everything. So that the petroleum was available and then it was extracted, I went to the refinery and then refining took place and from that this cooking gas was bottled and was sent here. And imagine all the infrastructure required, all the natural elements required. You find that just for one experience of having a cup of tea to take place, you require the whole universe. Therefore, if God wants to fulfill one desire, one desire of me, what is that? Have a cup of tea on a given afternoon at four o'clock. What will you require to create? The whole universe. And then you want a cup of tea and they want a cup of tea and then I want some chapati and somebody wants it. Add up all of this and you will have the whole universe just to enable us to gain the experiences required in order to require the result of performance of action. Because every action must result into a reaction. And reaction is a form of the karmakala, result of action, which has a happiness or unhappiness. And so, for gaining these experiences, we require the whole universe. Now, add up the needs of all the living beings. Understand, human being is not the only uh, inhabitant of this world. There are millions of other kinds of creatures. Each of them has their own need, understand? We have some kind of needs. A mosquito has its own need, I guess. An ant has yet another need. All different creatures have different needs. And somebody to plan out how to fulfill all their needs. At what stage of life, who is going to require what? Before their birth and during the birth and after the birth and so forth. And if you add up all of this, you have this whole universe in effort. Universe is said to be karma phala or the result of action. And then the universe is in front of me. And because I have rajas in my mind, I am attracted to the objects, so I want to enjoy them. Again, desire is created. If there is tamas in my mind, I have an aversion, you know, I have something else, that also creates a desire. Sattva in my mind, that also creates a desire. The sattva, rajas and tamas, all of them create desires. Rajas creates a desire to enjoy. Tamas creates a desire to get rid of it. Sattva creates a desire to know it. A person having sattvic mind, when he sees something, this curiosity arises, hey, where does it come from? What is it made about? That's how all the scientists with sattvic mind, when they look at the world and the various phenomena, there arises a curiosity in their mind. What makes this possible? What's the cause of it? And they investigate, and that's the pursuit of knowledge. And therefore, whenever I react to the world, either I react it, with a desire for pleasure, I reacted either to harm it, I reacted with a desire to help it, or I reacted with a desire to know it. When desire comes, action comes. 
Action comes, result comes. Result comes, the experience comes. Experience comes, again my response comes. I learn to know, I to enjoy, I to get it. Again it is that, that's how the whole cycle goes on. And therefore, the whole universe is said to be included or covered by this three. What is it? The karaka, the kriya, kriya means action, karaka accessories, and phala, kriya karaka, phala lakshana, samsara. This samsara is that which consists of these three things, kriya, karaka, and phala. The action, accessories, and results. Understand that the dual is a part of accessories. The doer also is included in the accessory. The knowledge also is included in accessories. The dhruti, the resolve also included all in accessories. They are all included there. So kriya, karaka, halakshana, samsara. Therefore, when Lord Krishna described all the six different things, in fact, he has described the whole samsara. And what is the whole samsara? It is made up of these three gunas, sattva, rajas and tamas. And as long as we are in the realm of these three gunas so long, the cycle of birth and death will continue. Let a cycle of cause and effect will continue. And we say that when a person performs an action, he is accountable for the result of the action. Therefore, I must experience the result sometime or the other. If that result does not come in this lifetime, well, I have to take another birth to experience the result. So karma action is like a like a seed, and it's called karma phala is the fruit. So you see, different seeds produce fruits at different times. You know, there are certain seeds which produce fruit in six months. There are some seeds which produce fruits in two years. A papaya seed may produce fruit maybe in two years. A mango seed may take twelve years to produce fruit. fruit. And this, depending upon the kind of seed, when the fruit will come, is determined by the nature of the seed. And karma or action is like a seed. Never, depending upon the kind of action that I perform, when will the fruit come? When will the result come? That, de- is, that depends upon the action that I perform. There are, this Muti Grantha is described there. Sometimes they say, they say, if you do certain such thing, you will experience result after seven births. If you do this and this thing, the result will come in the next birth, whatever it is. Whether to believe that or not is a different matter. The point is that when we do something, the result will come. And that I must be around to experience that result. If I am not around, sometimes what happens is action that we perform, the result cannot be experienced in this body. This body is only competent to have, have enable us to get some experiences. But then some of the actions are so bizarre and so exotic or whatever, that this body is not capable of producing, you know, helping me to experience the result, I may require a different kind of body. That's how the cycle of birth and that's the samsara, samsara is transmigration. This transmigration, the movement from one embodiment to the other embodiment continues. So as long as we are in the realm of the three gunas, so long, one cannot get away from samsara. If you remember the discussion that we had some time ago, we said 
that the I or the ego is made up of these two principles or two entities the Purusha which we call person or the self and there is Prakriti. which is what we call the personality. <coughs> or the non-self. Sometimes they call this person, the spirit, or the consciousness, and this prakriti, the matter. It is a matter that is made up of this Three grounds. Sattva, Rajas and Tamas. What about the Purusha? What is he made of? This Purusha, the Self, what is he made of? He is made of the three grounds? No. Is the one who transcends the three gunas. So sometimes I use the word transcendental, you know. Or let us say that one who is free from the three gunas. And for that Lord Krishna once used the word Nistraigunya. This is Traigunya. In the realm of three gunas, nistray gunya, one is above the three gunas. In the second chapter, Lord Krishna says, Traigunya vishayavedaha, nistray gunya bhavarjuna. Here, Juna, the whole samsara is in the realm of the three gunas, and may you grow out of the three gunas. May you identify yourself with that which is above the three gunas. As long as you identify the three gunas, you identify the personality, you identify the whole universe, and so long you cannot get away from this limited life of birth and death. We don't have any objection to birth and death, really. It's not that moksha means freedom from birth and death. Moksha, liberation, means freedom from limitation. But as long as I am having an embodiment, or as long as I have the identification of embodiment, then I am limited. Because the embodiment is limited, personality is limited in time, place and condition. Therefore, the sense of limitation that one experiences, limitation in time, limitation in place, limitation in all the qualities, attributes, that is what is called bondage. And therefore, moksha or freedom means freedom from the sense of limitation. It is not that the personality limits me. It is not that the body really makes me mortal. It is not body, mind or sense complex that limits me. It is identification with that which limits me. So body is not a problem, but I am the body, that becomes a problem. Mind is not the problem, but I am the mind, that becomes a problem. And so what happens is that whenever birth takes place, there is automatically an identification also with the embodiment and therefore a sense of limitation. And that is what is called the samsara. And therefore to become free from samsara, what is necessary is to de-identify from the personality 
or de-identify from the three gunas or to recognize myself as the one who is different from the three gunas, beyond the three gunas, untouched by the three gunas, unaffected by the three gunas. Like Lord Shiva, even though remaining in everything that is inauspicious, everything that is impure, Lord Shiva is ever pure. Otherwise, he is only surrounded by impurity. Is it not so? You know where Lord Shiva lives? He lives in cremation ground. Most impure thing. I mean, by the Vedic tradition, you know, some people might think cremation ground is something very sacred. I don't know, but at least in India, cremation ground is something that is inauspicious. And he has on his body, he smears on his body the ashes from the funeral fire. Highly inauspicious. You don't, if you even look at it, I think you want to take bath. Let alone if you touch it, you know. Some people. So, and then he is surrounded by all the ghosts, again inauspicious. On his body there are the snakes, inauspicious. In his neck there is this poison, inauspicious. All impurities, he is surrounded by the impurities. And still, he himself is what? Embodiment of purity. Shiva means auspiciousness or embodiment of purity. What does it mean? That he is a purity that is unaffected by or untouched by the impurity. He is what? The embodiment of detachment, unattachment. He is unaffected. He is untainted. So, he is, that is how Lord Shiva is the embodiment of unattachment, being untainted, remaining pure in the midst of impurity. So our personality also is like that. Sattva, Rajas and Tamas. This Tamas is like that poison in the, in the neck. The Rajas is all the snakes and stuff like that. And so, this is Sattva, Rajas, Tamas. The Lord Shiva also has some other nice things too. He has also Ganges flowing from his head. That is Sattvic. So Sattva is also there. Rajas also is there. Tamas also is there. He is a substratum of all of it. And himself, totally free from the influence of them all. Similarly also this purusha, the person, the self, is a very substratum, is a very locus of all the three gunas, sattva, rajas and tamas. But it himself ever remains pure, ever remains free. And therefore, this is a process of shifting the identification from the prakriti to purusha, from the personality to the person, shifting the identification. Except that the shifting is a process. And therefore, that is shifting is called renunciation. Renouncing the identification of the personality and establishing the identification of the person. That's what we have to do. That's the reason why Lord Krishna teaches renunciation in Bhagavad Gita. What is the renunciation? Giving up the identification with the prakriti, with the personality, with the three gunas. However, that identification also is given up in stages. As I said, the identification with Tamas is given up by identifying with Rajas. The identification with Rajas is given up by identifying with the Sattva. And identification with Sattva also has to go by identification with the Self or the Purusha. And that final step takes place by knowledge. The first steps take place by Karma. And worship. When we say karma, we mean the performance of action in the spirit of worship. So by karma or the worship, the first two stages take place. In final stage of de-identification sattva also takes place by knowledge. So Lord Krishna said to Arjuna, 
flowing in the current of this of the life of birth and death and which is the life of limitation and suffering and therefore may take the refuge of this person, the consciousness, the self, from which, which is the cause. So from the effect, go to the cause. From the tree, go to the root. And the root is Brahman. How do we go? By dispelling ignorance, by the pursuit of knowledge. And that pursuit of knowledge, as we said, can take place in two stages. First stage is Karma Yoga, second stage is Jnana Yoga. <coughs> and so, that is what also Lord Krishna now wants to describe. So therefore the tree of samsara is described. Now Lord Krishna proceeds to describe a process by which we can slowly and slowly extricate ourselves from the tree of samsara. And for that, the way is performance of one's duty. This is the karma yoga, performance of one's duty. <coughs> and that's what now Lord Krishna is going to describe. It is called Swadharma. One's duty. So living a life of performing duty is a life of karma yoga. See, in the Vedic times, since, as we'll discuss now, since the society was classified in what we call the four castes, a very sensitive and touchy issue coming up now, you know. And so, since the society was divided into four castes, and the Veda scriptures prescribe what is the duty of a member of which caste, the whole society was organized around what we call the caste Varanashrama. This word is made up of two words, Varna. Varna is, can be translated as a caste. And Ashrama is the stage of life. And so, every member knew what caste he belonged to. And of course, you know, what stage of life you belong to. The caste, as you know, are famous. Brahmana, Kshatriya, Four 
the whole society was divided. This was a division of labor, division of labor. Because naturally for the society to function, different kinds of functions should be performed. And ideally, a given function should be performed by the one who is most suited to perform that function. One who possesses the right kind of disposition. And one who has the right kind of an aptitude and ability. Just as we appoint different people to perform different tasks in any organization, and similarly also, if the whole society can be looked upon as an organization, then the four kinds of functions were identified which are required to run any, any organization or any system. And therefore, four kinds of people also were identified. Brahmana, Kshatriya, Vaishya and Shudra. <coughs> when I am discussing, I have no intention of promoting caste system, etc. You know, this is merely the discussion which is based on the scripture. So that you understand where they come from. Because, of course, there is a lot of, not only criticism, a condemnation also of the caste system, but then it is necessary to understand where it comes from. What is the spirit behind this whole caste system? What's the purpose of it also? So, as we understand then, I guess we'll have a better appreciation of where it came from. And then there is ashrama, ashrama in the stage of life, which I also said before. Although the reference of these castes have come earlier in the fourth chapter, just briefly mentioned, <coughs> and the idea of duty has been described in many, uh, has been stated in many places, but in the whole Bhagavad Gita so far, Lord Krishna has not clearly stated what are those castes and what are those duties, it has not been stated. And therefore, now the occasion has come here to state that clearly so that people understand what their duties are, because the duty as we say, is really the concept which is uh, for my growth. So performance of action in the spirit of duty is a spirit of duty which is the means of self-growth. That is how the Vedas recognize. How to help this person grow, grow in his inner maturity, grow in his inner strength. How does he become free successively from reactions? How does it become free from these raga and dvesha, attachment and aversions, or from inner impulses? So, how to live a life so that progressively we become free from this, the hold of this inner impulse or reactions? And for that, the concept of duty, a very unique concept, which you particularly find in the Vedas, a very beautiful concept of duty. Duty means an action that is performed in the spirit of offering, the spirit of from a sense of gratitude. and. From, a, from an understanding that I must return the favor. So that's called duty. And everybody should know what the duties are. And therefore, the Vedas also specify, the scriptures specified by Vedas, even Vedas also, and then there's a Smriti. So Veda is a Shruti. The Smriti, Smriti are the Granth of the texts which are composed by the sages. The Vedas are the revealed texts. And the Smritis are the texts that are composed. Because what is said in the Vedas, in order to apply it in our day to life, we require somebody to interpret those statements of the Vedas or instruction of the Vedas. Somebody should interpret for us so that we know how to apply it in our day to day life. And so these Rishis or Sages, in fact, 
elaborately wrote. So the spirit of the Veda is then described so that we can in, we can interpret that in our situations and follow it. So Shruti and Smriti, all of these things basically talk about one thing and that is duty. And that is why Lord Krishna now wants to talk about duty. Although the idea of duty has come earlier. Niyatam Kuru Karmatvam, here Arjuna, we will perform the action that is enjoined for you. What is that action? Now Lord Krishna finds an occasion to tell us what those actions are, what those duties are with reference to the different castes. And the stages of life, stage, there also you know, the Brahmacharya, What's the third one? Manaprastha. And the fourth is? Sanyasa. You just go up there, you turn out of space, so. <laughs> I should go up anyway. <laughs> So, Brahmacharya, Grahastha, Vanaprastha, Sanyasa. Stha, stha means to stay. So, Grahastha, one who lives in Gruha or home is called Grahastha. You know, Gruhetishthadi. So, one who lives in home is called Grahastha. Vanaprastha, Vana means forest. So, one who lives in the forest, called forest dweller. This is called a householder. Vanaprastha is called forest dweller. And sannyasi is called the, the renunciate, or is called a wandering monk or renunciate. And brahmachari is called a student. So, the student, householder, forest dweller, and renunciate, these were the four stages of life, identified as the four stages of life. They are always there, it's not that they were. The four castes are always there, and the four stages of life always there. Except that the Vedas identified them, and use them to organize the whole society, to help the person determine what is his place and what he should do. <coughs> these are, these four stages of life are roughly divided into four equal segments of life. If the lifespan is looked upon as 100 years, then tentatively you say that first 25 years the study, second 25 years the householder, third 25 years the uh, forest dweller, and this fourth 25 years is residency. But it doesn't have to be years in terms of years. It is hoped that as a person goes along in life, he grows in maturity. So really these four are the stages of maturity. It is hoped that in 25 years a person gets proper education so that he becomes fit to enter life of a householder. It's not that just because of 25 that they are fit to become a householder. It's not so. People take for granted he's 22 to Swami, we should get him married. But have you ever checked up whether the fellow is mature enough, you know? It's a big thing. To get married is not a small thing at all. People just plunge into that and they recognize and they find out what it means. But then, if there is a maturity, then the Guru starts. Every ashram becomes a blessing if the person is prepared for that. And so, one prasta is also retirement. Retirement also requires a lot of maturity. And then renunciation also requires maturity. So, the four stages of maturity 
or four ashrama, the four stages of life. So that's how the life was thus divided into varna and ashrama. For a person to know what it is that I should do in a given situation, what is my duty in a given situation. So I can perform the duty and that would be like a spiritual life. Just life of performance of duty becomes spiritual life. And everything in India is only based on duty. That means the Vedas look upon the life of a human being is primarily a spiritual life. Along with that you can enjoy your pleasures and comfort also. But dharma, artha, kama. Artha and kama, the comfort and pleasure. But they are preceded what? Dharma. So therefore the duties. And by following dharma, whatever artha kama you get, enjoy it. So that is how life was looked upon as a life of as a spiritual life meant for the growth of the person. And that's how Lord Krishna in the following section now is going to talk about the duties of this four castes. We'll take it up in the next class. <coughs> Purnamidam Purnat Purnamudachyade Purnasya Purnamadaya Purnameva Vashishyade Om Shanti 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 Shankaram Shankaracharyam Keshavam Badarayanam Sutra Bhashyakrutau Vande Bhagavanta Upunapunaha Ishvara Guratmedi Murti Veda Vibhagine Vyoma Vadvyapta Dehaya Dakshina Murtayanamaham Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Shri Guru Bhyo